I mean, De- De- yeah, DePaul is uh, is heat cannon now, Ryan. Uh, Vincent Hanna went to DePaul Law, dropped out. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a demon just like us, dude, you know? Us demons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Four sick, demons. dude. Michael Mann loves referencing DePaul University because he knows it proves that he's a, a real Chicago <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here today by... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic, a theme for the week. And the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet that topic, address the topic, uh, rile up the topic, whatever. And it was my turn this week to select that theme for us. And, you know, as I was explaining at the end of the the podcast last week, um, I have lately uh, been... Been, been going through some some medical drama uh, in in my my household. Uh, both of my my little Chihuahuas, Bobo and Chauncey, have have you know needed some 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 serious medical uh, attention lately. So I've been in and out of uh, vet offices and animal hospitals. It's just been been uh been kind of rough and i've i've been dealing with a lot of doctors cardiologists er techs vets nurses you name it so it kind of got me reflecting on hospitals hospitals as a space as a space for drama emotion health mental and physical and so i thought hey i'm already here i'm already literally in hospitals, why not? We, we check them out cinematically as well. So I asked the boys to bring me films that were set in hospitals that take place in those, uh, those halls of medicine. And they did. They sure did. And we've got a, a very very interesting double feature two films which <laughs> which you know in their hearts and and minds couldn't be farther apart and you know me that's what i live for here on the podcast so without further ado we should bring the films into the operating room let's do it give me 100 cc's of a double feature right now boys let's go <laughs> Uh, let's start with the earlier of the two, and that belongs to Dr. Marsh. Thank you, Andy. Yes, really, uh, the choice that I ended up with was uh, in reaction to what Ryan picked, which was also on my short list. And I figured, you know, 
you would like a little uh, little contrast, perhaps. And so uh, when Ryan went the route he did, I was looking for something, uh, I don't know, sleazy, trashy, sort of mainstream, right? Uh, and I could not help myself when I discovered that there was a Canadian slasher film where Michael Ironside plays a misogynistic, psychopathic serial killer who stalks a hospital for uh, a majority of the film. And uh, I just couldn't help myself. So uh, the film I picked is Visiting Hours from 1982, directed by Jean-Claude Lord, who is a Canadian filmmaker, who uh, perhaps is is maybe more well-known for directing uh, The Vindicator, which is a Canadian ripoff of The Terminator. Get it? (laughs) This is, a, <laughs> this is a film shot in Montreal, uh, and it centers on the feminist journalist Deborah Ballin, played by the great Lee Grant. And she, when the movie opens, is sort of uh, caught in a media frenzy over uh, this, this case that's going on uh, about a woman who I think like murdered her husband. Uh, in self-defense, and it's become this sort of lightning rod uh, sort of situation that Lee Grant finds herself in as this feminist journalist, and shortly thereafter, uh, she is stalked and attacked by Michael Ironside, sending her to the hospital. And uh, (laughs) from there, uh, he infiltrates the hospital several times, (laughs) and we'll we'll get into uh, all that shenanigans. But yeah, this film is uh, like, you know, Michael Ironside's previous film, Scanners. This is Canadian tax shelter cinema, baby. (laughs) That period when uh, there was money, even when there there wasn't ideas for films. And uh, uh, this film is like a lot of those sort of Canadian horror films that were, uh, you know, came out of this cycle. Movies like Prom Night and Terror Train and My Bloody Valentine. You know, this is uh, another take on uh, on that, you know, in the post uh, sort of Halloween glow that everyone was still living in uh, in 1982. Um, it's a very, very strange movie uh, and one that, uh, you know, has this sort of like paradoxical uh, concept, right? Where it's this just like, you know, B exploitation movie, but about a feminist journalist and it can't help but like confuse it, confuse itself, you know, time, <laughs> time and again. And I guess kind of an interesting way. Uh, but I was really struck, you know, this is my first time seeing it. Uh, I was really struck by the cinematography by Rene Verzier, who shot Rabid, I discovered, uh, and is a sort of a legendary DP from this era. And the film is very striking. It's got this sort of like cool electric blue lighting uh, throughout. And it's just a very dynamic looking movie. Movie. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, other things I guess to mention is it has uh, William Shatner in it, and I knew Andy that you uh, might appreciate that. Oh, always. I'm a Captain Kirk man myself, you know. <laughs> and 
you know, this film, much like Ryan's film, uh, suffered a little bit of censorship. This film was a video nasty in, to see uh, in Britain and uh, caused a minute to be cut out of it uh, to this day. That's the, the official cut is the the video nasty version. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's visiting hours. We will get into it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dr. Saunders, what have you prescribed for us this week? It is funny because the film Mars Selected was one I was actually seriously considering as well. I had seen the trailer for Visiting Hours dozens of times. It was on the, I believe it was on my DVD copy of Cemetery Man, and it was unskippable. <laughs> so when I would show that movie to people, because I was like such a, a cemetery, I still am a Cemetery Man freak, <laughs> love that movie, and it always had the trailer for Visiting Hours, and I, I was quite captivated by it. It's a cool trailer where you see the outside of the hospital at night, and all the windows are lit up like a grid, and as the trailer goes on, the lights start turning off and then it like will flash cut to um, people being killed, some images from the film. And by the end, all the lights that remain create um, the image of a skull, which you can kind of see in the in the poster. Oh, hell yeah. But it's a really striking trailer. So just to piggyback briefly off of Marsh's pick, people should check out the Visiting Hours trailer. It's it's pretty neat. It's inventive. Um, you don't see creative trailers like that too much anymore. No, no. You really don't. Now, the film I ended up going with, as Marsh had mentioned, it was something he was considering, is one that is an old favorite of mine. And I hadn't seen it in a really long time. And I think one of the reasons I was so jazzed about returning to it, and when I was thinking about the theme and how I sort of internalized it after you announced it, Andy, was I was thinking about the kinds of things I've done at hospitals, right? Which is waiting. (laughs) And, mm-hmm. you know, what is the experience like at a hospital very often? You know, it's not necessarily full of uh, the kinetic energy of something like Johnny Toe's hospital, where you have a very negligent hospital and crazy things going on. Um, but sometimes it's quite dull and you're sitting there and waiting. And I think one of the greatest filmmakers uh, currently working and who has ever worked is someone who has made that type of patient waiting not feel unpleasant. And I think that's one of the miracles of this film that I'm very obsessed with. And I am, of course, speaking of the great filmmaker from Thailand, Apichapong Warasathakul, the director of Syndromes and a Century from 2006. There's a bit of a little local connection for Apichapong. Uh, one of the other reasons that he's He's so much in my heart, right? He's uh, he's an alum of the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, and because of and that... He's a Chicago guy. He's a Chicago guy. You know, in Chicago, <laughs> we like to call him Joe, um, so I figured we could hop back and forth between that. I like calling him a pitch and pong, uh, and I, I did get to meet him. He's so cool. Uh, he Because he's an alum at SEIC, they brought him back one year, and one of my favorite movie-going experiences of my life was was seeing Cemetery of Splendor and then Apichitpong giving a lecture about how the future of cinema would involve all of us sitting in hot tubs and then transmitting images of films amongst each other telepathically because at this point we will all have lizard brains and cinema will become a truly collaborative communal experience. And to be honest, I think we're getting closer every day. I, I still consider him a prophet, you know? But so Syndrome's in a Century, little special treat, we've got two hospitals 
in this film. For the price of one. Two for the price of one. I, I should preface that by describing the nature of this film in case anyone really wants to go in blind, and it's kind of a neat film to go in blind if you don't know anything about it, I, I do have to kind of describe the central formal conceit of it, and it is a bit of a spoiler. So this film does feature two hospitals, and it switches halfway through. We spend the first half of the film following a handful of people, a nurse, a doctor, a dentist, a monk, at a countryside hospital. It's very beautiful, it's very green, it's very warm. We spend some time with these people, we have little vignettes. How they all relate is a bit malleable and mysterious. And then about halfway through the film, it resets. And now we're in an urban environment. We're in the city. We're at a huge hospital in Bangkok. Everything is very pale. It's very sterile. And the scene that we saw at the beginning of the film happens again, but the same actors, but it's shot a little bit differently. And then what follows is a series of rhyming sequences that kind of refer back to the beginning of the film, either by shooting it from a different angle, a different perspective, or just changing the paths. And the film kind of goes off in different directions. You know, it's been, it's been kind of an odd week and I watched it a while ago actually, we're recording on a Friday and I watched it on a Tuesday night and at first I was nervous that some of it would disappear from my mind and you know, it, it hasn't. It, it's a really mysterious film that is also so straightforward. I feel like my experience watching it again was very similar to the first time I saw it where if I was forced to describe what was happening on like a scene by scene level, I would probably find myself tripping over my tongue. But at no point while watching it, both the first time and revisiting it, was I ever confused with how he was making me feel. There's something so eloquent and beautiful and perfect about this movie that it feels like a dream. Um, his film, he himself has said, you know, you're welcome to fall asleep while watching his movies because uh, he thinks it's part of the design. He wants them to speak to you on that sort of cosmic level and, and reach in your subconscious and your heart. The, you know, the other thing about this film, as, uh, as March hinted at, is, you know, Pong has had a lot of struggles with the censorship regulations in Thailand. And it's funny because this is an extremely tame movie. There's nothing graphic in it. This is a PG movie. This is a, for sure. Yeah, this is one you could take the kids to, without a doubt. And the Thai censorship board, I believe when they finally let him release it, they forced him to cut 15 minutes from the film. And he did something kind of neat because he's just such a cool guy. He, he released the film with those sequences uh, with just black imagery that was all scratched and they were silent. So for every moment of the film that had footage missing, audiences in Thailand would have to watch a black screen for the full duration of the scenes that were gone so you could feel that absence. And he gave everyone these, these cards that had links to YouTube for the scenes that were missing so that they could follow along if they if they wanted to or at least revisit it after the fact. I don't know if he was encouraging this in, in the, the cinema itself. But he's that kind of artist. I mean, I don't know if I need to like talk about just broadly a pitch at Pong, um, but he is someone who's very special to me. I, I love his work and, and this film I think has, you know, getting so far ahead of myself, maybe my favorite ending of like any movie ever. Definitely top five. It's just such a special thing and um, I'm happy to happy to check back into the hospital with the pitched pong and enjoy these big wide shots, these silences, these beauties, these missed connections, everything. Uh, so that's syndromes in a century.
Thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much. I think when uh, you both gave me your picks earlier uh, in the week, I think my reply to you both when I saw the films, the titles, was the prognosis is good for movies. <laughs> and I have to say, uh, it is or it was, you know. Um, <laughs> At least up until 2006. <laughs> yeah. Both of these um both of these were films that, you know, had been on my radar. I I had never seen the trailer for uh, Visiting Hours, but it's a movie that I have hovered over many times on various streaming platforms where I've seen it pop up, you know, maybe on Shudder at a certain point, you know, and and yeah, that poster image you're describing of the, the hospital with, you know, all the lights out, except for those which create a skull was very striking. Mm -hmm. And and I was certainly very intrigued, but you know, for one reason or another, it, it gets lost in the shuffle. So I was very happy uh, that, that uh, you know, Marsh, you brought that uh, for us because I'd been meaning to see it and, and obviously been meaning to see everything a pitch upon ever made at some point, yeah. you know, so was, was, was very, very happy with this double feature. And yeah, as you said, Marsh, it, uh, it certainly was a contrast, you know, I was thinking about hospitals and, and I think I share your, um, your, your read of that, Ryan. I mean, fortunately for me, I've never, uh, I've never had to go to a hospital for a medical reason. I've never, you know, had to spend the night in a hospital. And my experience has also been that of visiting people I know who are in hospitals or, you know, taking someone I know to a hospital. And and yes, sharing that that feeling, that experience of 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 waiting or or perhaps being nervous or or whatever, but generally speaking, most of my experiences have been, yeah, in in a in a waiting room or only at visiting hours, right? But I was like just kind of reflecting on on hospitals. My my, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think a lot of people would agree. Uh, the best way to experience a hospital is by, I guess, not having to be in a hospital or only visiting someone and and bringing them flowers, as Michael Ironside will 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 do later in the film. <laughs> um, but you know, I got to say. Um, in just a very sort of superficial comparison between these two, or I guess three hospitals, uh, by the end of, of the double feature, you know, I was like, man, obviously in the case of visiting hours, that is not a hospital you want to be in at all. No. <laughs> that is, that is the last <laughs> hospital you want to be in, but you know, and and it's a testament to a pitch upong's unique skills. Uh, I did not want to leave the hospitals in his film, and even the the colder version of of the hospital that he's exploring in the second half of the film. His way of sort of capturing the small moments between people in spaces and and spaces that can seem harsh or unforgiving or nerve-wracking, uh, there's still this sense of, of warmth and camaraderie that you find in, in the people. And, and I thought it was just so beautiful. So for me, I guess, you know, if I'm just looking at these two hospitals, or again, three hospitals, um, you know, there was one that, that I think leans into this idea of a hospital being a very scary place. <laughs> and the other... Uh, 
that that a hospital can be and should be ideally a center for healing, not just physically, but perhaps spiritually. It's a matter of life and death, you know, in both films, you know, Visiting Hours is a film that, yeah, sees the hospital as a place of death and sets it up as a a place of carnage, of of uh, scary, long corridors, you know, and like shockingly understaffed uh, from security to nurses, you know, like. And uncoordinated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a dreadful, dreadful place. And on the other hand, of course, Epitropong's vision of the hospital is, yeah, one about uh, health. It's a, it's more of like a positive or, or certainly like, I guess, Buddhist kind of look uh, at what what a hospital is and, and how it can can help or transform or whatever uh so yeah i mean that's a, a very stark stark difference and of course you know drawing that out even further uh think about like the camera in both movies right like yeah. visiting hours is this like stalker cam like handheld dolly shots like very fast moving around and then the stillness, you know, and like the the inviting uh, sort of camera of a pitcher pong that just like, you know, puts you in these these spaces that, yeah, are best, you know, experienced more more than anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think there's one handheld shot in Syndromes in a Century. And I was shook when it was happening because I thought all of a sudden we were back in visiting hours. Um, it seems almost as if it was a practical decision just to capture people heading downstairs, you know, into the into the bowels of the hospital where where both of these films do end up at certain points. But I think what you mentioned, Marsh, about the Buddhist connection with syndromes in a century is very important and something I didn't in highlight in my intro, but it's sort of how you've described it too, Andy. The the hospitals in a Pong's vision is an ecosystem. And it's an ecosystem of healing where everything relates to each other in seemingly very productive ways. And people are there to help each other and make connections with each other to varying degrees of uh, success. And that design of the film, splitting it in half, having things happen again and rhyme and go in different directions is like many of the Pitchett Pong's films dealing with that idea of Buddhist reincarnation and how our souls might survive beyond our, our physical bodies or in different spaces, how, what kind of impressions we leave on people, how we're able to connect with other people through time, through space, through everything, right? So it almost does feel like, you know, both of his hospitals, the Pitchet Pongs, there are curiosities around every corner, and yet everything feels like it's necessary to be there. Everything feels like it belongs. Everything feels like it relates to each other. And then in visiting hours, we have a very scary 1980s hospital that has, you know, still has low ply carpeting. It's a place that seems like it might be <laughs> kind of dirty and not where you'd you'd really want to go to get healed. <laughs> no, no. And I think you 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 put it well, Marsh. You know, one is a one is a space of death and the other space <laughs> of life. I mean, and that's it. I mean, you ask so many people, why don't you like hospitals? And they say hey, it makes them think about death. And and yeah, visiting hours is this very, you know, uh, on a certain level, like schlocky exploitation film of going like, all right, you know, at this point, where are we with slasher films? Well, we've got to just go to different spaces, uh, different places to insert 
death to insert that kind of carnage. And the hospital is, of course, a, a perfect choice for that, uh, a perfect arena for all of that violence. And I think what I really admired about the film or what I found very amusing is the way that, I mean, look, Michael Ironside, uh, we're going to get into it, but like he kills a <laughs> lot of people in this movie. Quite a bit. This has a very high body count for, for <laughs> slasher films. Um, and it's like, I kept like laughing because I was thinking about like, man, for a guy like this, this is the perfect this is the perfect place to do this. Like he's killing people and it's like, this is, well, it's just, now we just take them a few floors down to the morgue or whatever, you know, like, you know, they're in the hospital bed already. And it's like, as the film went on, you know, cause as you mentioned in your intro where he's like sort of stalking the hospital and he's, he's infiltrating it several times. It's like, I just kept thinking of it. He's just a doctor doing the rounds, you know, he's just checking up on all wow. the various people he comes across. And it's almost like this kind of like workmanlike attitude. That's, that's very cold. That's very, uh, clinical almost like, uh, a doctor, uh, even though he is, a, a big time cuckoo as the film will will go to great lengths to show us. It's such a wild read that I haven't even considered because the film is occasionally a bit flashy in its in its cinematography. Like you mentioned, Marsh, the it, I was surprised at how expressive sometimes it was visually. I mean, it almost felt like there were Night of the Hunter references at certain points with Michael Ironside showing up at the bedside totally enshrouded in darkness. But there's also chunks that are just so matter-of-fact and are so procedure-like. I mean, we spend so much time in this movie just watching people walk around and walk from place <laughs> to place and room yeah. to room. And I loved that. I It was not what I was expecting. And it's kind of related to Pitchet Pong in that sense. Visiting hours fills its hour and 45 minute runtime with shots of people just walking to different rooms. But there's almost something about that read you have, Andy, where because it's so matter of fact, it's scary thinking about that it's suggesting that this is just the natural day-to-day of a hospital. It is about <laughs> death, that this is all supposed to be happening, that all of this is appropriate for this space as designed. Yeah. I mean, there's even a part of the film where, you know, in, in it's, it's not clear if it's a dream or if it's actually happening, where Michael Ironside infiltrates, like, the, the operating room. Yes. You know, just as Lee Grant is, like, going under for this procedure after the attack. Uh, and she is like, you know, maybe she's hallucinating it. But, like, I, I was just like... This guy just walked in here and like <laughs> turned on the gas. Yes, you yeah, know, he put, he put on scrubs. <laughs> yeah, dude. they were like, "Oh yeah, hello, doctor." You know, <laughs> I mean, and that's a very like great part of this movie for me. Like being, of course, such a big Ironside fan. Uh, as a serial killer, he has that like forger aspect. Like he's always got a costume. Like I'm a worker, or like I'm a nurse, or I'm a doctor. Like he's just always turning up, like cold as hell, looking like. Just some guy that works wherever, you know? <laughs> Just got a job to do. Yeah. I, I dude, I, I loved it. And I, I, I think for people who like Michael Ironside, like this is this is a this is a feast. Because oh, yeah. man, you know, it's like I was thinking of other like slasher films, you know, and I was I was of course thinking about, you know, certainly for like North American audiences, 
what the critic Mark Kermode calls Carpenter Year Zero, which is the release of, of Halloween, mm-hmm. you know, and how this then created this whole new era of horror films and slasher films and one after another. And, and he traces them all to, to, for him anyway, to that very significant moment. And of course, we've talked about it many times over the years, and, and this is, you know, uh, common knowledge at this point, but, you know, Carpenter's take on Michael Myers originally as just being like the shape and this sort of entity in his mind, this, this vague presence, uh, you know, and, and keeping it obscured to us, keeping it shadowed from us. Like I was like contrasting this film with that quite a bit and going, man, this is just like all Ironside. You know, this movie is almost entirely from his perspective as the killer. And we are with him, like you said, when he's, of course, like murdering people, but we're also just with him when he's like winding down, he's when he's his dad. visiting his dad, <laughs> you know, when he's, he's interacting with his landlady. I mean, like, there is just so much of him in this movie that like I viewed him as the protagonist. And again, that's why I think I started to see him as just this sort of like doctor of death that's going to work. And in his performance, sort of treating it that way as like, you know, not something he's getting his rocks off on, but something that he is just like, I have to do this. This is my job. This is why yeah. I exist. He's got like his tool belt, you know, uh, he, he's very organized. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, he's just, he's just going to work, you know? Yeah. And it feels like whenever he has a failure, he doesn't even take it too personally because he is treating <laughs> it like work. I mean, he has a single minded obsession as he's trying to go after Lee Grant. But, you know, it's like you got a bad day of work, you try to brush it off, and you think, all right, let me try again next time. I'm going to try again tomorrow. Yeah. You know, my next shift is going to be better than this one. Yeah, he does. I mean, he's he's incredibly methodical throughout the film. Uh, I wanted to say, too, in general, because we've been sort of talking about the look, you know, um, I don't know if either of you got this, but... but uh, I found it a very visually striking film as well. And I kept getting like, uh, uh, like Argento vibes, especially in that opening sequence of, of, uh, Lee Grant's home when we're first introduced to Michael Ironside, but the colors, especially, you know, like I saw a huge, like Jalo influence over this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and particularly with Argento, his way of sort of, capturing stillness and being such a master of 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 capturing stillness uh and and creating in you know insane amounts of tension out of just like empty rooms empty hallways and that sort of thing and the opening in uh in lee grant's home like to me is like that would have been the climax in so many other like shitty uh, or lesser slasher films. And yet this film is like opening with such an amazing use of space and and dread and doom and terror and tension building. And and again, the, the then uh, shocking release of Michael Ironside bursting into the frame, the way he looks like, like that's like the money shot, you know? Like our introduction to him is like, like, yes, that's the totally insane guy that's now letting everything loose. But what's so funny is that from that, he then does shift into this, like, all right, 
back to the drawing board. And then he just becomes like a much more rational, almost, you know, I don't want to say sane, but, but yeah, very like clinical in his attempts at killing and murdering. And maybe we should give our listeners a better picture of, of how Ironside is introduced to us uh, in the film. Well, he just sort of like uh, bursts out from behind the curtain, right? Like in Fantomas. And he, you know, he's got all these piercings. Uh, and he's just in general like. He's totally naked. Yeah. yeah. Wearing all of her jewelry. Yeah. Festooned in, in like an obnoxious amount of jewelry and eye makeup. Like multiple necklaces like clip-on earrings on every single appendage he can find. I, I kept thinking it was like, he kind of reminded me of like, like the genie from Aladdin, you know? But if he was, you know, naked Michael <laughs> <Sure>. Ironside. <laughs> but it's, again, so funny because like when she is able to sort of escape that initial like burst, it's like he kind of goes like, all right, okay, maybe, maybe, Maybe that wasn't the best way to go about this. And he, he starts like taking off all the jewelry and, you know, like, yeah, just right, like let's... puts his pants back on. He just like gets yeah. dressed. Yeah. Let's, let's rethink this. I mean, but, but yeah, I mean, amazing, amazing. But yeah. So like, it really is, you know, as you said, it's like cult portrait of a serial killer more than it is, you know, a film about Lee Grant feminist journalist. Right. And that's sort of like, the, the paradox I was referring to earlier, and I want to I want to share with you uh, a bit from the, <laughs> this Canadian horror book. Uh, they came from within, uh, you know, history of Canadian horror had, a, had was cracking me up. Uh, someone might have been able to tell the tale of a psychopathic misogynist stalking a feminist television commentator through a hospital, taking out sundry patients and staff along the way, without falling into the trap of making a rather sick and misogynistic film out of it. A woman filmmaker might have done better still with a story like that. But why would she want to? <laughs> Screenwriter Brian Taggart, later the writer of the marauding rat picture of Unknown Origin and a 1997 Winnipeg shot cable TV remake of Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive called Trucks, <laughs> very, oh very definitely lacks the subtlety and talent required to sidestep this pitfall, right? Uh, and that's, you know, I, I, I pretty much agree with that in, in a sense that Right. We spend, yeah, most of our time uh, exploring, you know, his day to day life, his flashbacks, uh, to, you know, to to his trauma. Right. Um, whereas, yeah, there is, you know, Lee Grant in the hospital. Now, I think there's more to it than that, but uh, I don't want to jump the gun on anything. Sure. Know? Sure. But I, I mean, I think it's a good point because, you know, in the way that this film uh, dissects his character, puts him uh, uh, under examination far more than her. It it almost reads at times as a sort of like, you know, it, it almost like lessens the horror of of what he's doing in its attempts of, at at sort of explaining, you know, why he's doing this through these flashbacks. Oh, he was abused and, you know, he's, he's really mentally ill. Like if only, if only he could get the proper treatment, maybe none of this would go on. Whereas she is kind of just de depicted as just this like, 
yeah, this very like two dimensional like oh these feminists you know like look yeah. at look at the kind of look at the kind of trouble that they stir up and in fact that's basically what William Shatner says to her at oh, the beginning yeah. you know because the film it doesn't open on that scene with like Ironside naked right. the film actually opens. Uh, in the TV studio. In the TV studio, the incredibly Canadian TV studio <laughs> that that has America Today uh, on on the backdrop, you know, on UBS, uh, and it's like a television program where she's sort of yes, like offering her quote activism in in sort of standing up for this woman that's on trial, and apparently that is the thing that you know launches Ironside's very methodical, obsessive. Uh, stalking of of her attempts to kill her but you know as soon as she gets off the air William Shatner I think Gary who's, yeah. who's her boss mm-hmm. you know uh, he basically sits her down right away and says like you've killed yourself like, <laughs> like do you know what's gonna happen you cause a lot of trouble for a lot of people you know and and the way it's sort of presented to us it's like yeah she did, and like she's playing with fire. You shouldn't do this kind of thing because there are these kinds of sickos out there. So it does get very muddled very quickly. And for the rest of the film, I mean, our only glimpses into Lee Grant's character and 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 our only experiences with her are are for the most part her just like laying in a hospital bed and like moaning, crying, whimpering, begging people for help. You know, there's there's very little like agency on her part throughout the film. It it belongs entirely to to Ironside. And and it's not to say that there aren't women throughout this film who will also join the picture and and contribute and and try to to do things but yes it's 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 the failure of a lot of slasher films you know mm-hmm. and the idea of the final girl like oh well the woman eventually gets hers against the guy but the point is they spend 90 minutes <laughs> yeah. helpless and terrorized you know that that it isn't really this sort of like celebration of strong women no. more than it is reveling in their in their their peril. Yeah, more than it's it just like too little, too late when they even try to cover their bases later in the film. When William Shatner talks to her and says, "You know, you're a target because you're a strong, independent woman. You know, you're <laughs> you work independently here. You're doing your own thing, and people don't like that. You know, and it's if the film is trying to acknowledge, you know, yeah, that's what this is really about. You know, <laughs> um, and then like stumbling and just tripping over their shoelaces. It is kind of why I like movies from this era, though, too, because obviously so many contemporary horror films in this like budget tier now try to make it very explicit what they're going after and try to be like actively making a point the whole time. I do like some of these autopilot and I'm not saying nearly any of this, the majority of it's autopilot, but just, you know, things at this budget level from this era, exploitation cinema, the films themselves are confused as to what they're doing and how they're doing it. They have some ideas, but because of the execution, because of the way it's all arranged, you can't help but walk away going, yeah, this is a bit muddled. I don't know how I'm supposed to process all of this because you're you're right. You sit there and you go, this is just the Ironside show. You know, how else can I read this movie except it's about this dude's problems and it's all about this guy. You know, and on the flip side, Ryan, like you're talking about the sort of fascinating incoherence of it all, because I was really also vibing on the fact that 
uh, absent of Ironside, there's and and Gary, you know, Shatner, <laughs> who's sort of like this foil. Uh, there's no other male characters that are important or who are helpful or, yeah. or who are heroic or who are literally anything. And all we actually see happen in this movie is like three women who didn't know each other all like come together and sort of like help each other out a little bit in yeah. this like dire situation. That's so true. it does have that, but like. As you said, mostly the film is like shots of people walking down corridors. It's like <laughs> the pace of this film is is not good by conventional standards. Like it's a very clunky experience. Yeah. Um, pacing wise, like on the whole. You I know. did find the pacing kind of relaxing. You know, I'm a sucker for horror films, so it's kind of just catnip for me. But an oddly paced 1980s exploitation film like this does put me at ease and um you know absolutely that's the case with syndromes in a century it's something that is designed to just be tonic for the soul i mean a pitched pong had said this film is is for people's hearts that he made the film to speak to people's hearts and we talk about some of the fascinating incoherency i would never want to prescribe incoherency to to any of Apichit Pong's films, but I would say that some of the narrative stuff is perplexing, right? I mean, how do you encapsulate this film? What do you say it's about? You know, there's like a press release that goes out with it that Marsh and I were joking about. If you read critic reviews of Syndrome in a Century, when they try to describe it, they're just spitting back out the press release by mentioning <laughs> like, oh yeah, this is a movie about, uh, Apichit Pong was making a movie about his parents. Memories of growing up in a hospital environment with his parents. And none of that's text. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like the movie may be about that, but it's not ever explicitly drawn upon. You know, sure, maybe these two primary figures are supposed to be his parents, but the film never tells us that. That's just what the promotional booklet says. The film <laughs> tells us many other things, you know? And so it's funny sure. that, like, when you try to read about this movie from writing at the time, that that is what they're so obsessed with, you know? Because, yeah, what is, who are our protagonists here you know there is a woman doctor there's a male doctor maybe they are his parents but you know like thinking about their journey there's also look there's also a singing dentist oh exactly. you know? right and there's a monk who uh, dreams of being a dj i mean yeah this this film is uh, on that level right i mean yeah it's reading that and watching it now i just go like well who's who are the parents you know like <laughs> yeah. Because again, that that's not actually uh, part of the film at all, right? Because at no point do the primary <laughs> woman and man character fall in love. They overlap and share scenes together, but if that's the mother and the father, they are both pursuing alternate romances throughout Correct. the film. And you know, it's funny, because I read a little of those, um, I read a few of those as well, you know, in like, how are people summarizing this experience? And like, I've been encountered in some cases where like, like I wondered if they'd even seen the movie or <laughs> yeah. yeah, they, 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 again, were given promotional materials, um, that were, were very different from the film that, that he actually turned out because I saw in some place, uh, it said that, uh, it was hospitals taking place in hospitals that were 40 years apart. 
And I was like 40 years apart. That didn't read to me at all. And like, yes, maybe a different time period, but that's a huge jump right. from sort of what I experienced between these two these two places. I mean, I I felt more a, a sense of different space than I did feel a sense of of different time. Because uh, they have CDs right. in the in the rural hospital. Right. Yes, which someone was claiming was from forty like forty years, years ago. Yeah. The guy, it's it's a huge part of the film where he's like, my CDs, my CDs. You know, like. <laughs> it's funny. I had remembered the movie too as occurring in maybe not a gap of forty years, but two different time periods, and when. When I was prepping, you know, even just before watching it, I saw I read the Rosenbaum capsule and I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, he like explicitly calls out same time period. They're both in the present day. Yeah. Um, and there are people that do refer to this movie occurring in different time planes of existence. But everything he gives us seems to suggest that this stuff's all happening at the same time. Maybe. That, that was certainly my read. I mean, yeah. And there's, again, you know, a, a reference to Star Wars as well. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that that's my favorite part. It's just like off screen. So I'm being like, the hospital's got glass, got these new glasses. I'm like, oh, just like Star Wars. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like branded glasses? I don't, I don't fucking know. But yeah, what is this movie about? Well, it opens with a shot of uh, the wind in the trees. Right. So uh, that's how you know you're in... Uh, you know, good cinematic hands. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. We were, we open with the wind in the trees and then we have one of our characters interviewed by another. Um, they were asked a series of questions, presumably, you know, applying to have be a higher level position at the hospital as a doctor. I was actually even just a little bit confused about the base fundamentals of it, yeah. but it almost felt like they were applying to just be recognized in this film. You know, there's just something about it. Like I couldn't yeah. I couldn't put my finger on it. You know, and and I think partly because it is just such a bizarre interview for a potential doctor mm -hmm. and and I think that's part of a pitch up pong's you know, his very strange sense of humor at times that comes out in his films. Uh, because the questions that this potential doctor is being asked, uh, there is no rhyme or reason to them, None. seemingly, at all. I think one of the, the first things he's asked to do is just make a fist and hold it out in front of him as, uh, you know, clench his fist. And, and of course, we just hold on that for a very long period of time. And no explanation as to, like, again, why that's well, sort a surgeon, of important. right? You know, you got to have magic hands Steady like hands. Ben Carson, Steady you know? I, I, suppose, I suppose it is. But, again, I, I guess I wasn't even clear what position he was he was applying well, for. But you're right. he was a though. pharmacist or whatever. No, you're right, because it feels like... Also, like a psychiatric evaluation, yeah. you know, and there's like a good bit where he's like, oh, yeah, I play basketball. What position? Center, you know, and it's like, what? What is this? Yeah. You know, doesn't she ask him, like, wouldn't you rather be a, like a square circle or triangle or something like that? Yeah. Like, what shapes what? do you prefer? Yeah. yeah. What <laughs> well, shapes do you prefer? Yeah. And he says circle a circle right and this is a film that sort of comes full circle and yes. i was thinking about that this time around he also says he wants the that circle to be clear sure oh yeah right she's asking him about the color and he says clear which is not a color at all right? <laughs> it's a total absence of any color i mean again which ties i think into some of the philosophies uh and and spiritual aspects that he's going to to display throughout the film Come on, 
บอกเล่นมาร์กตำแหน่งไหนอะคะเซ็นเตอร์ครับแล้วที่ชอบวาดรูปรอบชอบวาดสีไหนคะสีน้ำมันสีไม้หรือสีช็อกคะวาดรูปสีไม้มากกว่าชอบสีไม้อะครับรูปสำเนียงสีเหลียววงกลมหรอชอบรูปอะไรคะชอบวงกลมครับชอบวงกลมแล้วอยากให้วงกลมมีสีอะไรคะหมอวงกลมอยากให้มีสีBut I also did, you know, we we jumped over really quickly, Marsh. I I wanted to point out that um, when when he did say he 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 liked basketball and he liked playing center, his response made me again laugh because he said, "Well, you don't have to be tall to play center." And I was thinking, like that's the <laughs> that's the one position where height is the most beneficial to playing that position. You know, if he said point guard, I'm all for it. You know, but but he said you don't have to be tall to play center, which again I can't help but think is. He's like some sort of sick joke, you know. But yeah, he's asked uh, about his demeanor and and would he describe himself as a, as a cheerful person? And of course, he says yes in the most like monotone, <laughs> almost like lifeless way that that all of his friends find him very pleasant to be around. Yeah, it's a it's a strange interview, and he is of course given the position very quickly, uh, very unceremoniously, and then uh, when he's sent to the ER to to go help out this new doctor, he has to of course come back and say, "Are you sure about this?" Because boy, I sure don't like the sight of blood. <laughs> it makes me faint. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 hilarious. I I was just laughing throughout. The whole intro of the of the film. It, it is a consistently very very funny movie, and I think that that's something for people who maybe haven't encountered a Pitchet Pong's works before is like a good thing to know. You know, I feel like some of these big international art house dudes that you know people ascribe to, to being slow cinema of some sort. It's so important to remember that these guys are they're just they're very funny too. Yeah, pitch, all of the Pitchet Pong's movies are funny. They all make me laugh, and it's all on purpose. You know, it's it's in the design. I mean, the scene I remembered the most, having seen it many years ago, comes very soon after that initial interview, and it's just one of the many scenes of great monk content that we have throughout the film. And there is this mm. fantastic discussion where the woman doctor is sitting in a room, you know, talking to this monk at her desk, while there's also another monk. Um, And another man who are, are sitting there on the side, and they're just talking about, you know, talking about his checkup, talking about his health. And he's the monk is negotiating with her for all these different things. He's like, "Can I get some vitamins for the temple boys? Like, can I bring <laughs> yeah. that back?" She's like, "No, you gotta, you gotta bring them in here." And then he's like, "Wait, hold on. What about you? Doesn't your mother have asthma?" And she's like, "We're <laughs> just talking about you, sir. Like, we're not gonna be able to yeah. like bring everyone into this." He's playing all the angles. <laughs> Right. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and that all comes after he describes a, a dream he has, a recurring dream about being possessed by the spirit of chickens. I mean, this is tremendous content, folks. <laughs> it like, really is because they're chickens that he he hates because of how much noise he, they make, and his way of dealing with that is like praying for them and making offerings, and that's why he thinks they're coming after him in his nightmares to kill him. Well, and and also because of potentially uh, a a massive storage of bad karma, because right. he said, you know, I'm haunted by their presence. You know, I'm terrified because when I was a, a young lad, he said I was mean spirited and I used to break their legs. Yeah. I used to go to my friend's right. house and break the chickens' legs, and now they've come back to haunt me. You know, and and <laughs> and throw me out of my bed in the morning. ในฝันผมอาจจะมานะผ
พวกไก่นะมันบอกอาตมาว่าอยากให้อาตมาทรมานทั้งทั้งที่อาตมานะI love in the first half of the film, you know, these spaces that we're in in this rural hospital are like it's the hospital is like such a part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. all the windows are are open, and there's like massive greenery and trees and plants, like in in every shot. From the inside, it's like this really, yeah, this really strange feeling, and the way it's sort of like blown out in the background just a little bit, you know. Like there's some really sophisticated stuff going on with the image in terms of light and just like how this place looks uh, in the daytime and at night when it also looks like insane. There's so many, so many moments where you know we will be in an interior of this hospital with certain characters. And uh, you know, characters will sometimes get up to leave, uh, go go to another room or something, and a pitch up pong just lingers in that room, uh, and and of course now all we can do is is turn our attention to the window and to the world outside of it. I just kept thinking of of this this sense of 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 so many people who are just. Daydreaming, and mm-hmm. and just looking out windows, and and looking out at the world, and and he's doing it on his own. You know, he's doing it with the camera. Characters are doing it, but this this especially this hospital, the first hospital, you get that sense that this this is yes a part of the whole natural order of things, uh, and and this like lingering, this looking outwards to the world, to the beauty. Of the world that he's showing us is is um, yes, it's in it's inescapable, and I think that's what you know really you know where you get so much of the contrast. Like people focusing on the the the, the contrast in time are are so off base, right? Because this is really <laughs> about about spaces, you know, and and we don't really have a lot of windows in the city hospital in the second section. You know, uh, I think so many of the interactions with characters, people, and the world in this first section is um, focusing on that beauty, this idea of a sort of organic whole of things. You know, in this world, there's this this organic whole of which we are a part. And the second is so much more like visiting hours, I guess, in the sense of sure. corridors and hospitals and and dolly shots, dolly shots, and feeling uh, totally like almost imprisoned by modernity, by technology, by 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 concrete and stone mm-hmm. and steel. Right. I feel like the few times you actually get to look out a window in the second half. The image is totally blown out. That you, it's so pale and the sun is so bright that it is hard even to see the buildings outside of the window. If we've got someone who's exposed and the windows behind them, it's pure white and it's very bright in the rural section. But when people are looking at windows or framed by windows, we can usually see what's out there. We can see the trees. We can see the wind blowing through the trees out there. But it's much, much paler and cold in the urban center. Of healing <laughs> versus the lovely ecosystem of healing that we have in the rural environment. Yeah, definitely. the The first part is like a 
sort of like a, a John Ford, you know, like uh, like rural, like Will Rogers Hospital <laughs> thing, you know? It's like community doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it feels like that. Uh, and then the second half, right, is more like science fiction. Like, if something feels off about it, kind of, in a way. I mean, it has its beauty, but, like... That, it feels like 2001 A Space Odyssey compared to, compared to the first section. Sure. I mean, again, contrasting the two <laughs> opening sequences of these, these sections, like, again, with the monks, mm-hmm. we see the monks twice, right, and, and interacting with the doctor and, and more or less trying to talk about the same issues that they're experiencing. In the first one, there is this almost, like, holistic approach to what's going on with him. And the doctor is 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 allowing uh, these sort of lines of inquiry and thought to drift into the spiritual, to drift into the almost supernatural at times in talking to this monk about his dreams and the chickens and karma and and herbal remedies, you know and 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 you know, they in a strange way are are both kind of it's like a two-way, it's like a two-way interaction of healing that takes place because he gives her, the doctor in the first one, who's a woman, mm-hmm. who's played by a woman, an herbal remedy. And an herbal remedy, he says, that that's going to help her with, you know, uh, menstrual pain, among other things. And she accepts it. And we then also see a little bit later on that she's brewing up that herbal remedy for herself. But in the second sequence when we're in the hospital the the urban hospital we see the monk interaction with the doctor and this time it's an older male doctor yeah so like again it's not the same woman so it means there's more doctors Mm -hmm. yeah and and the interaction this time i mean the doctor is basically just being like all right this is all mumbo jumbo here's what's going on with you you're eating too much damn chicken it's filled with uric acid there's no chickens haunting you you know like and and like you know, there's even this this moment where the monk also tries to then offer him the herbal remedy. You know, hey, this will be good for you know for for I think he tells him for for forgetting things he doesn't want to remember. You know, for his memory. And the doctor's like, "What the hell is this?" Like, great, thanks a lot. You know, and he's not interested in it at all. He's like, "I'm not gonna touch this shit like this. I'm a doctor, right?" And then he's like, "I'll get you pills, though." Yeah, I'll get you pills, though. And then again, we get the whole thing about the asthma where he turns to his, his buddy and, you know, in, in the first sequence, she's like, like, come on, I have to see a patient. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play along with this. You know, Mm -hmm. like this patient has to come in and speak to me and talk to me. We need to sit in the same room and be with one another in order for this healing to take place. But in the hospital, in the urban hospital, the doctor is just like, all right, what's going on with the asthma? Tell me all about it. Like, and you get the sense that he would be totally willing to, you know, prescribe a remedy or just simply get these guys out of here, give them whatever the hell they need. There, there doesn't need to be that personal interaction. You know, it is, of course, yes, much more, quote, clinical mm-hmm. this time around. And I mean, that's most successful in my favorite point, counterpoint in the film and just one of the most beautiful things he does with this film, almost it seems in a way just challenging the cause and effect systems of 20th century filmmaking and traditional nar- traditional narratives, just because of by nature of the design. Because in the front half of the film, there's a beautiful sequence 
with a dentist who is working with a monk. He's giving him a free dental examination, he says, because he's he's gaining merit by, by giving a monk a, a free examination. And they connect. There's so much there. Something blossoms. And he talks about, the dentist talks about how he likes to sing. And he sings him a song. <laughs> ไฟฟันขาวๆเวลาเริ่มต้นมีเชียวปากคนจะน้องลมไปจะทำอย่างไรใจเย็นใจเลยยังเป็นภูมิคุ้มกันให้ความสะอาดอนามัยand it's so beautiful. He's, you know, when I go to the dentist, it's, it's you know, I know, and you know, your, your father's a dentist, but I've had terrible experiences at the dentist. I've had crude dentists. I've had mean dentists. I've never had a dentist sing to me uh, the way that that dentist does to that monk. It's really, wow. really lovely. <laughs> you, uh... and, you you've never been to my dad. I'm sure my dad does sing to his patients. I you love know? to hear that. That is very good. <laughs> little Sinatra, yeah, a little Sinatra oh, sometimes. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Whatever you need, you know. And he's got a massaging chair. <laughs> I'll never forget. I had a dentist that was like going in to like do shit in my mouth, and then kind of recoiled, and then went back again, and then recoiled again, and then kind of paused, and then just said, "Were you attacked by a dog?" I said, "What?" <laughs> She's like, did you get bit by a dog? I was like, no, what are you talking about? She's like, well, it looks like you have this like scar on your face. I'm like, no, no, I've, I've never been attacked by a dog. She's just like, okay. And just kept going. I'm like, what a psychotic oh, thing to say to God. someone. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I digress. The, so the, but so that connection that those two have, the monk and the dentist, that expands and blossoms and becomes something that the front half of the film keeps returning to. Uh, and it develops. There's that dentist has a performance. We get to see him sing. We talked about the CD. They're exchanging CDs. And we could talk about that, that sequence a little bit later. It's, it's so lovely. And then in the second half of the film, there's two dentists and a monk. It's very clinical. It's a much larger room. There are so many more chairs. And they're trying to put this fabric over the monk's eyes that has like a cutout for his mouth. The idea being that the monk then doesn't have to see, you know, the scary tools that are probably going into his mouth to like claw at his gums. And the monk keeps trying to pull it down saying, no, I'd prefer to see. I'd prefer to see what's going on. But the scene dies. Yeah. That relationship is, is dead on arrival. There's no connection between the two of them. That dentist does not sing to that monk. He, he's given a veil so that they can't connect in that way. And I'm like, this is just so tragic. And it's just so beautiful in the way he designs it. You have an initial meeting of two people that continues, grows, and he does so much with it. And then in the second half, you see it die. And you know we're not going back. We're not going to visit these two people again. And yet, the dental care is probably better. Yeah, I couldn't help but like thinking about yeah, my father in that, you know, and again, then reflecting on different approaches to medicine and different approaches to, to what it means to be a healer. You know, like I, I love my dad. I mean, you, you guys have met my dad and, and, you know, my dad's always 
is a person that I've always admired because I've I've known him to only be that as a dentist, as someone who builds a relationship with everyone that comes into his office. I'm not just trying to like advertise for, sure. you know, Dr. Mark Stasil's <laughs> DDS here, but like it taught me a lot, like growing up in that kind of environment and understanding that like, you know, as a, a physician of, of whatever kind, you know, it isn't just about being a sort of mechanic of the body, which I think you see a lot in that second sequence, this idea that, you know, these are just, you know, people, they're just, you know, meat sacks that come in for repair and and our job is to get them in and out as quickly and as efficiently uh, as as possible. Mm -hmm. But again, in so many of the sequences in the first film, you know, kept reminding me that it's like, um, you know, we heal each other in various ways. We just have different skill sets. You know, because again, the, the monks in the beginning, it's like, yes, the, the doctor's trying to help him, but he's also trying to help her. And she allows it and encourages it to 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 grow and build on a certain level. This scene with the dentist is, yes, it's 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 so beautiful. And it does make you you long for more of that kind of of care. And the fact that we do see it develop into a relationship, you know? I mean, my father is is the kind of person who will get to know his patients because he feels it will help him to know what they're afraid of, to know what they uh, will, will laugh at, to make them more relaxed. And, and yeah, that's why it's so painful, as you described in that second sequence, where we see it just nipped in the bud. Any, any, any friendship, any kind of relationship that could be built out of something so intimate as having someone root around in your mouth is, is, is painfully, uh, uh, crushed in, in such a small, small moment. My favorite example of the quality of care that's on display in visiting hours, speaking of, um, nipping in the bud is, um, a, hysterical moment where one of the first people Michael Ironside kills in this hospital is he goes in this room at night for this old woman. He thinks that that's the room that Lee Grant is staying in. And this is that moment I said that was kind of like Night of the Hunter. He like comes in as this dark force, sits on the edge of the bed, you know, his face is barely exposed. And he he slices... I think it was a tube of oxygen that was keeping yeah, this woman alive. Tube. Yeah, he slices the oxygen tube, and then he leaves. This woman dies. And so, of course, you know, the machine is firing off uh, the typical, the patient is dead noises. Yeah, flatline. And this nurse walks in, <laughs> and she's very calm. Again, this movie's about people, like, walking between rooms. So it takes a, a minute or two. She gets to the room. It took her a little bit. She walks up to it completely deadpan expression she sees this tube and just picks it up and is looking at the oxygen like shooting out of this tube and is just totally muted i was waiting for her to just go totally blank like what why is she dead curious and then of course she's like immediately killed right i um ironside gets her but that's to me like that's the level of care that we see in visiting oh, hours. Yeah, that that fucking. I mean, yes, that that is a hilarious sequence of of how leisurely that nurse approaches a a you know code red patient or whatever in that room. <laughs> and I think what I loved after that 
you know, in the movie. I mean, I, I honestly, I really enjoyed missing hours, but, but maybe not for the reasons that, you know, Jean-Claude Lord intended or whatever, but, <laughs> but, you know, so this woman is murdered, right? And not just like this woman with a nurse, like this is a murder, a brutal murder that has happened under the noses of, of everyone involved in this hospital. And of course, narratively, Lee Grant is very alarmed when she discovers the room number because like, oh my God, like this was intended for me. But everyone's reaction to that woman being murdered is hysterical. It's hilarious. Do you, do you remember? Everybody kept saying, the cops, everybody involved, it's like, well, she was a very wealthy woman, it turns out, and she had a lot of relatives. It could have been anybody. And they're just brushing the whole thing off. Like, the, the cops are even just sort of like, yeah, you know, she was a rich lady. Her, her family killed her, probably. Like, who knows? I mean, there's this emphasis of, like, they're not even trying to solve this crime. They're no. just like, they have the same kind of like leisurely lackadaisical approach to a horrific murder in which no one even mentions the nurse who stabbed brutally as well <laughs> in this room that, that, you know, probably one of her, her nephews came and, and rubbed her out for the insurance money, open yeah. and shut case, you know, and Lee Grant is like, no, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible hospital. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was talking about. Like there is an absolute lack of, of credible authority figures who <laughs> who show themselves in any way, shape, or form to be fit for the job they're doing, whether police officer or doctor. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a fucking clown show up there <laughs> at Montreal County General or whatever. You almost wonder if if it is, and I don't know much about Jean Claude Lord, but it is meant to also be some sort of you know indictment of the. Uh, Canadian medical system, or perhaps the American medical system, you know, because it is set in America, even though it's a Canadian film. But like, yes, the level of incompetence, like organizational competence displayed throughout this film almost starts to feel like satirical in like how pathetic and how how lifeless it is. Yeah, I mean, it actually feels like Lars von Trier's The Kingdom at times, just not in like an ironic, joking way, you know, when yeah, you see some yeah. of the mismanagement and negligence going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that confusion is at the heart of it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I hate to go back to the book here, but there's a really good, really good bit in this this book uh, where two two Canadian guys sort of have it out a little bit. You know, one guy sort of like referring to the other. Uh, he says, in a review of visiting hours for Cinema Canada, John Harkness made the following observation. The crazed killer is an American phenomenon. The fact that these stories are native to the American psychology means that John Carpenter could make art out of Halloween and Toby Hooper out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because they felt the stories in their bones. When we try to imitate a foreign genre, we wind up with visiting hours. <laughs> Terror Train, My Bloody Valentine. These films are aesthetically unsuccessful because they are not felt by their makers. And uh, the other author fires back, being like, "Listen, there's plenty of sickos in Canada, but you know, <laughs> sure. uh, it's very—it's a very funny sort of like you know back and forth that he has there." It's kind of so true, though, you know. Yeah, of yeah. course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> 
Because there's also, in, in spite of this movie's attempt, well, like you guys at, have socialized medicine. What is this? You know, what's yeah, going on at this yeah. hospital? Yeah, because I mean, again, like in in spite of this movie's attempt to be uh, a video nasty, to be like this filthy murder show, mm-hmm. it's also like a very uh, uh, like. Uh, polite film. It's a very quiet film. It's it's like it's you know, no one's really losing their. I mean, Lee Grant is like the only character that's like losing their cool throughout this film, and like reasonably so. But everybody else is encountering these these vicious moments and vicious attacks and 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 horrifying brutality and and what is clearly a hospital besieged by a serial killer and sort of just kind of ho humming <laughs> oh shucksing a wow this is a unusual kind of throughout the the, the entire runtime there's there's no sense of like desperate urgency amongst like any anyone's uh, encounters or interactions in in the movie. No, and I mean, even look at the police that are asked to be guarding her, you know, the ones that are sitting outside her door. I mean, they're also totally incompetent. They just hear like a smash in another room and they're like, oh, well, I better go abandon my post and uh, go see what that <laughs> noise was down the hallway yeah. and leave, my, leave the person I'm guarding totally unattended. At night, it is one of those movies, and and this movie isn't alone. I don't I don't want to pile on this movie that I actually really enjoyed. Yeah, I know me but too. <laughs> it is such a trope of so many hospital films, I think, and and especially like scary hospital moments and and you know horror films set in hospitals where they just all have this kind of thing going on where it's like as soon as it hits like nine or ten p.m. Like the hospital is abandoned by everyone who who works there. There is no night shift right. in in most movie hospitals, it would seem. And again, for such a massive space to, from my account, like only run into maybe like two entire people in that hospital overnight. I mean, it's 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 of course extremely convenient for a predator like Michael Ironside yeah. to know he's got free reign once he waits for visiting hours to actually be over. Yeah, I think that's, you know, they spent the whole budget on that wide shot of, like, the carpeted lobby, you know. That was just, like, one whole day of work blown to get all those extras in there. So the rest of the time, I mean, yeah, they shot this movie in two months. Uh, Not the most time, you know, but uh, I've seen less. You know, I I, I do want to talk a little bit more about that Predator, Michael Ironside. And the film did surprise me because... When Michael Ironside is first going after Lee Grant, you sort of just assume that he has like a a true personal connection to the case that she's bringing up about the woman that, you know, um, was claiming self-defense while being brutalized by her husband Mm -hmm. and how she was losing that case. And so she was standing up for her. And you just assume, right, like Michael Ironside was involved in that. Yeah. And then the film, <laughs> it, it keeps going. And then you realize, hold on now, he's got nothing to do with this. He's just a guy whose father had a bunch of like hot frying oil thrown on his face because he was abusing his wife. So Michael Ironside's mother. So Michael Ironside is the child of a woman who defended herself and then permanently disfigured 
his father. So he's the idea is that he saw Lee Grant on the news and he's like, oh my God, I hate when women defend themselves. I need to kill this journalist that yeah. is advocating for women to defend themselves because it maims men like my father. Yeah. The ultimate daddy's boy <laughs> yeah. in this scenario. It's just insane. Like he's so obsessed. <laughs> I think again though, building on that, what I really appreciated about, you know, how uh, strange and unique his character <laughs> is among a lot of slasher psychos I've seen in movies is also that he's just, there's this, this element of his, 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 you know, persona that we discover is he's also just a very, he's just an angry letter writer he's guy. He's the letters of the editor guy, dude. I wrote <laughs> yeah. that down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, this is his ultimate letter to the editor here where he's, we see this amazing shot when we go to his like apartment at some point of like a wall covered in framed letters he's written to God knows how many organizations or periodicals or newspapers. Yeah, dude, there's an insane part where he brings this woman, Lisa, home. Uh, and and before it gets really dark, you know, she's just sort of checking out his apartment. Uh, and she she's looking at all the letters of the editor and goes, Christ, you really blast them all, don't you? Blacks, Jews, Mexicans. You want the whole goddamn world to yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. Like, they're like letters of the Chicago Tribune, dude. Like, yeah. you can get that shit published. Oh, God, like, yeah. For I mean, sure. He's, he has a rich, and, and they're very, <laughs> I mean, they're displayed prominently. They're not displayed in, like, your typical, like, you know, loony way. I mean, they're they're framed. They're, they're aesthetically organized on the wall in a very, like, you know, neat an efficient kind of manner. I mean, like, yeah, he's, he is just, yeah, he's a letter to the editor guy. That's what I loved so much about his character. And, and, you know, another like touch, like you said, he, he brings home this woman, something that I found again, unintentionally very amusing and funny about this movie is that like, look, I love Michael Ironside, but that is a gross man who has always looked gross. Oh yeah. And every Unique. woman, every woman in this movie just sees him and and wants to immediately fuck him. He is just like like this. He's got this. He's just like dripping sexuality to so many of the women he interacts with, including one of my favorite characters, his uh, his very old landlady who uh, used to be a starlet of some yeah, kind in, in the studio. Pictures, yes, in yeah. monogram pictures. I love it, you know. But she wants to go to bed with him, and he's annoyed by her. He goes to some diner and. And there's some some waitress who's also a little bit older and she wants to have sex with him. And then he makes Gaga eyes across the room at this woman. And she's like, yeah, let's get out of here. Like everybody just wants a piece of Ironside in this movie. And he is just <laughs> kind of frumpy, greasy looking. He's you know? huge. He looks really big in it. He looks like a very tall man. I don't know how tall Michael Ironside is in real life, but like. Yeah, he's a hulking figure in this film. Uh, not someone that I assumed would be like this big sex icon as he is in the, in the movie. I just assumed that I, all the women had seen him in scanners, so they uh, <laughs> yeah. they wanted to to get in on the action. Yeah, they wanted that rush. <laughs> I do want to point out uh, the the Lisa character who like goes home with him and then later figures figures prominently in like identifying him to the police. Uh, that actress Lenore Zahn. 
was the voice of Rogue in the animated X-Men. And more interestingly, she became a, an MP in Canada uh, and has been, a, has been a politician for like 20, 20 years or something. She's like the only person I've seen, at least recently, that has a, like a filmography and election results like <laughs> on her Wikipedia page. Oh, so uh, check that out. Hey, you good know. for her. Good for her. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to remember this too with, with this character. So Michael Ironside, he's also collecting all these photographs that he takes when he kills these people. And he's got like a collage on the wall. And I was thinking about, you know, all those... The skull collage. Right, but isn't it like he fills in the holes so it's not a skull collage until that woman then steals the most recent photos and then turns it into a skull collage? I just like thought that was peculiar that he didn't make the skull, but she like turns it into one by getting... (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm just overthinking it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I also feel again that just you know he is, you know, a very ordered person. I mean, like yeah. his place is when we first encounter it. It's like it's very neat. Everything is in its right place, and I feel like that was part of it for him was that that she disrupted his his order. And it's it's important, like as Marsh alluded to, eventually she will kind of. Like she survives their encounter, you know, and, and she does kind of come back, you know, she went to his place and he let her go. So at a certain mm-hmm. point later in the film, she goes back to the apartment and she said she brought a few friends along and they trash the place. Uh, they, yeah. they, they, they. They went spaghetti sauce all over the walls. Yeah, they wrote sicko and yeah, ragu on the walls. (laughs) Yeah, messed up the apartment. And I feel like, again, that was the thing. It's like she even clocked. This guy's very neat. He's very ordered. You know, what'll really get this sicko is if I just mess up the joint, throw spaghetti on the floor or whatever. (laughs) And you bring up, you know, kind of a, kind of, I guess, an important thing to mention, I suppose, about this film is that I think, I think, uh, it does have kind of a terrible reputation and I think that's largely because, you know, there is all these sort of implausibilities, especially with regards to Ironside's behavior, like who he kills and who he lets go seems almost arbitrary at various points, yeah. you know? Certainly haphazard for <laughs> yeah. someone who's trying to hide their crimes. Right, because he is presented as this, like, very organized killer, you know? But then, like, his his behavior is completely inexplicable at various points. And, you know, maybe it's just, yeah, maybe he's just a fucking sicko, yeah. you know? But, but primarily with her, that whole yeah. interaction, it, it stands out because he's... He's offing people left and right without hesitation, yeah. but but he does bring her into his lair, uh, filled with with shocking evidence, uh, and and then lets her go. But the fact that he would even then commit a crime that she could just go report to the police doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah. <laughs> There is not a lot that makes sense. Well, it's funny assessing Michael Ironside's behavior patterns and then thinking about a pitchet pong style also being something that's extremely organized and seems so purposeful. And yet as a viewer, sometimes if you try to parse it, it can feel inexplicable, just like the divergent paths that the film will take at times, because, you know, there's just so many moments that I, you know, when you sit and you're watching it, you're like, oh, I guess I wouldn't think that we would just be 
sitting and kind of just journeying suddenly into the past of a lost love for this woman doctor, you know, and then return to the present and then all of a sudden just go to a new hospital entirely and then like never think about that love again. You know, it all feels perfectly organized and yet it doesn't have that straightforward cause and effect design. But I do think one thing I kind of want to talk about too and get your guys read on is the film is so pleasant and it's so relaxing, but there is like a bit of sinisterness at, at one point, like in the latter half, when we're in the new hospital and we do arrive in the basement, I guess it's like, I, I made a reference to both of these films. We like end up in the bowels of the hospital, you know, and that's like where the climax of visiting hours takes place. There's like a huge chase where you see all the, you know, all the pipes below the hospital where uh, all that, yeah. all that waste is just flowing through. You can only imagine what's in, in the pipes of a giant hospital, you know, yeah, the gate to the kingdom, exactly yeah. the gate to the kingdom. And we do get a lot of that stuff still in syndromes in a century, some mechanical and abstract, like what seemingly seems like the spirits and ghosts of the films being evaporated by I mean it feels like Twin Peaks this big pipe you know like it just mm -hmm. like all this like gets sucked in and there's this like sinister droning but we do spend a lot of time in the basement of the hospital and it's specifically where a lot of former military men um, are taken care of and treated. But we, we meet a lot of characters in the basement. I just, the basement is such a peculiar section of this movie. Well, the joke they make too is that uh, it's, yeah, it's the VA wing, but everyone in Thailand has to go into the military. So everyone's <laughs> everyone's actually allowed in this in this wing because it's like family members as well. But yeah, we, we see a uh, like artificial limb sort of workshop, I guess, going on. Yeah. And again, this goes back to that idea that I think he's sort of exploring of, you know, how how um, how less organic this modern space is, how 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 inorganic so much of this this city life compared to the the rural life can be. Because yes, in that sequence where we go into the the section of, of, you know, people, uh, getting, you know, prostheses fixed and, and worked on and, and, um, adjusted, like, you know, there's a guy in the background just working on one of these things and he's just got like a, like a, you know, like a, some sort of like, you know, uh, sanding equipment going on. And there's just like, like, it's like a metal grinder. There's like sparks just flying in the background. Again, this idea that, you know, these are, uh, mechanics more than they are, people working on on living breathing tissue and bodies and 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 you know monks with toothaches and that sort of thing you mm -hmm. know so yeah i think it's i think it is a space that is meant to read to us as as colder as more machine like uh that entire sequence is the entire second half of the film is 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 playing on that you know again whether it's in the 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 cavernous dental facility or or yes in this body shop essentially <laughs> uh uh in the bowels of of the hospital but but again i think he's still you know in that space is choosing to highlight uh the the moments of fleeting connection that can be found the the the, the beauty at times of that paradox of of the city that I think he's he's explored in other ways in his career. This mm -hmm. idea that 
you know, in cities particularly, you know, we are are surrounded by so many more people. We are in closer proximity to so many more people. And yet, uh, we remain constantly disconnected or or anonymous in in our cities. And yet he's also choosing to to give us glimpses into like, moments of connectivity you know because there is that sequence that that moment in the bowels where <laughs> where we get the doctors who go in and and find those other like lady doctors Ladies, or whatever yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the drinking session yeah i love that dude that's like that's i think my favorite moment in the second half oh yeah you know? those those ladies. Well, yeah, because it's a re- it's a real moment of connection. You know, we have all these false starts that we see again that rhyme with the moments of connection in the front half, and then finally we end up in this basement, and we get to hang out with these gals that you know they take a, they're in a room full of all these prosthetic limbs. They they grab a leg and they're like they've got like a big little bottle of whiskey hidden inside <laughs> yeah. one of these prosthetic legs. They start dishing it out. And one of the doctors brings in this patient, this young man who has been suffering, who suffered from carbon monoxide poisoning and his recovery, the bounce back hasn't been what they were expecting and it hasn't been what they were looking for. And he's still suffering quite a bit. And this woman who's dishing out the whiskey from the leg, you know, she takes this holistic approach to it or this like natural remedy. She like puts her, her hand on top of his head to sort of like drain all that shit that's in him that's like still not being cured by traditional medical science. And it's this, it's this great moment because while that's happening and it feels rural, but it's also like this urban thing. Like, of course, this is someone we would find in, in an urban setting, like someone who could specialize in this, someone that can provide something for everybody, like here in the hospital. healing. Exactly. Yeah. She's like a TV doctor yeah. too, as it's like alluded to. You oh, know. okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause she's all done up and she's like, I got to be on TV tonight. That's why I'm right, all dressed up. Right. Like this. And why she's drinking as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm still, you know, in that moment, you know, you watch and you're like, I think it's still going to work though. No, you do get a definitive answer. Cause the kid goes, yeah, no, that didn't work. And then <laughs> the other, and then the other doctor goes, yeah, I, I already tried it. <laughs> yeah. So that's the second time it was done to him, and and it didn't work at all. No. Sometimes the magic works. And that kid goes out into the hallway and starts playing tennis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is cool. There's also an amazing moment as well in there, you know, with with his his style. That I I I know what you mean, Ryan, because I think you know his style particularly can can yeah feel very very mapped out very very tight mm-hmm. and and then there are suddenly moments that kind of burst through that i don't want to say feel unplanned they they feel very planned but they also feel like flights of 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 fancy or, mm-hmm. or wonder these these flourishes that that suddenly disrupt the order the 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 aesthetic order the the formal order that we've had throughout the film and in that moment as well there's this sudden and it's weird to say sudden I know. in <laughs> in a pitch of punk's work because there, there, there aren't a lot of uh, sudden moves at at the pace of the 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 orderlies and nurses of visiting hours, you know, at a, <laughs> yeah. going to going to a redlining patient, you know, um, but but suddenly the the camera slowly pans to the other 
you know, uh, elderly, you know, female doctor. And as the camera pans to her, we discover she is looking directly into the lens, directly at us, uh, seemingly like shattering our, our fourth wall. You know, we have felt throughout most of this film like a, a fly on the wall, like this sort of like observer in his, in his spaces that he lays mm -hmm. out for us. And suddenly it's this like really gripping moment where you feel that you are actually in this room, that you are actually with these people, that they're acknowledging our presence as well. It's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's about as shocking a moment as you could describe. It's true. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a great scene. And speaking to what you said earlier, Ryan, about, you know, certain darknesses that do pervade the film, it is in that scene when Dr. Nong, you know, tells them, well, they're sort of asking him about, uh, why he's a hematologist, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, my sister, she's got this blood disease. And they're like, oh, so you carry the gene, too. You know, uh, they're not talking about genes in the rural hospital, I assure you. Uh, and, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, no, I have it, too. And so there is this sort of like, oh, OK, so like he's a doctor who has a blood disease, who's a blood disease doctor, you know, this like it says so much about mm -hmm. him as a character just in that moment. And that is, yeah, this sort of, you know, realness that's sort of like dropped in that casual hangout session. Yeah. You know? Physician heal thyself. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. <laughs> It's it's a it's a beautiful moment because I I don't want to say the contrast is as simple like this movie wouldn't be to me as amazing as it is if it was just this very kind of one note like hey things are better in the country wouldn't you say like right he doesn't just stoop to that level of of totally like condemning city life uh, contemporary urban life we we do get love we do get romance we do get people uh breaking through these sort of you know structured urban um the structured urban design to to touch one another physically or 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 yeah emotionally spiritually so i think that's what what i really appreciate about it yeah. I mean, people still manage to break through in different ways, exactly like how you're saying. And I mean, you know, when all said and done, we still have the urban parks, you know, and that is um, something he, he loves to showcase and, and give us a little glimpse of. We have people exercising out and about, people people stretching their legs. It feels like almost a return to the, to the rural ecosystem that we have in the front half of the film. And I love just this final chunk of syndromes in a century where you know everyone's stretching everyone's getting ready we've got someone flying a drone which apparently was one of the things that was yeah. censored from the film it was monks flying yeah. a drone right and like that contrast was something that the thai censors just couldn't handle and they had to have him cut that you yeah. think the most innocuous thing but you know i like yeah the monk playing the guitar too was cut yeah but yes then of course we have the ending of syndromes in a century which you know it never fails to hit, and it's something that puts like a big bright smile on my face. Uh, it's something that Pitchmong has used as an ending for more than one of his films, and that is the the communal jazzercise where everyone uh, is you know following the leader, moving along to the jazzercise routine. But it's just a mass of people in a courtyard in the park, uh, and the music swells. Everybody's having a good time. 
and you as the audience, you just get a big smile on your face. And this is something people ask at Pitch Punk all the time, as if there's this like big grand design to it. And his answer has always been what you'd expect. It's, he says, I mean, I think it's funny. <laughs> he's, like, well, he's like, I see it and I think it's funny. Like, I like looking mm-hmm. at it. And it's this film that explores all this territory of the human soul. And then we just get something nice at the end, you know? And I think it's just such a beautiful way to cap off the experience. Just make you feel good. Give a little rush right at the end. A big smile on your face. Yeah, and it's exercise. It's health. It's good you know? for you, yeah. For your for your health, you know? <laughs> and that's, like, also one thing that is unchanged from uh, the two parts is, like, people exercising, you know? And they do it in different ways in the first hospital and the second one. Uh, but there is that activity, you know, that's linked. You know, there's some basketball in this movie uh, as well, which I appreciate, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's all about that, you know, and that's like the game he's playing too with like the diptych and like the, the structure of uh, what is the same, what is different uh, and and playing with it in that way, Ryan, that you, you said, it's like a dream. It doesn't follow any, any sort of causal logic, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're, you know, in the second half, we're constantly remembering the first and it's just like, I mean, it really is just this extremely like stimulating experience in that regard. Well, that's, that's why for me, it's like when you said that a pitch upon claimed that this was a movie for your heart. You know, like, I think there's one way of seeing that as like, yeah, like for your emotional heart. But, but I was like, yeah, yeah for your blood pressure, for your heart. Yeah. yeah, it's good for you. yeah physically <laughs> speaking, it's good for your heart. Like this, this movie will, yes, it will, it will, it will slow your pulse and, 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 and you will walk away feeling like you did just sort of exercise a little bit and you feel that spring in your step and, and you, it encourages you to, uh, you know, maybe strike up a conversation with that stranger you're sharing an elevator with or that you pass in the hallways of your work and, and have never taken the time to to, uh, interact with personally, you know, uh, I think it's, it's, it's beautiful in that regard. Those, again, those moments of connection that, that he celebrates. And what's funny again, comparing it to visiting hours is the way that Ironside just snuffs out every attempt at a possible (laughs) connection that anyone is making. And I, I think again, like probably one of my favorite moments in visiting hours is when he has again infiltrated the hospital, like for the third time and he's, he's done up like an orderly and he is given a patient to, to, uh, you know, bring to his room, this guy in a wheelchair again, who's like almost like a, like a Canadian Muppet. Basically, this guy who's trying to strike up a conversation. Oh, my with favorite guy, dude, Vinny. Vinny, yeah. yes, dude, Vinny. And he's like talking to him about, well, you know, I'm in here because of the gallstones. Too much loose living. I got no regrets. You know, I loved that guy, dude. That guy was like so. Yeah, amazing. he is the only joy in, uh, you know, just a pretty relentlessly uh, bleak yeah. movie. I do think it's funny the other infiltration strategy he uses like towards the end of the film because yeah he keeps trying to come in as an orderly as a doctor and this film flower delivery boy yeah and the the violence in the film is graphic but there's not a ton of you know gore effects 
necessarily until when he decides that his next infiltration strategy is that he's going to come in as a patient. And the way he decides to do it is he smashes a bunch of bottles and then just throws his forearm on top of it. And the prosthetic of Michael Ironside's arm with all those shards of glass stuck in it and all of the blood, really impressive. Um, Because again, the film doesn't really use a lot of that kind of makeup effects leading up to that moment. So I was was really taken by that. So I did think that was a excruciatingly painful way to injure yourself and then like find admittance into the hospital. And I got to say, again, you know, in his in his very like procedural kind of approach to to how he's getting in and what he's doing. Like, man, I thought this was such a smart moment as well and and shows you that he isn't just a total like wacko. Like there is a reason for this. When he first goes into his apartment, you know, that's that's trashed or whatever. And this is like after he, I think, murdered Vinny and had to flee the hospital. Again, he got sort of rousted out. Now he's aware that the cops know who he is and, and the, the net is starting to tighten. Like at his last point at the hospital, like he knew that that girl had given him up and he's like, basically it's only a matter of time before the cops show up. I thought this was just his like winding down routine because the first thing he does is he goes and he grabs a bowl <laughs> that, that has some pills in it and he just like opens up these two bottles them. of pills. Yeah. And just slams some pills, grabs a, a cold beer from the fridge, chugs the beer and I'm like this is his way of winding down you know little pills and pine cones and bottle yeah and then he dumps the beer out and I was like all right yeah he's crazy and then yeah he 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 doesn't smash the bottle first he just puts the bottle down on the oh. counter and then just brings his forearm down on it shattering it with his forearm and I was like oh man yeah he's nuts but then we get the cops showing up to his apartment and now like everyone's here and I'm like, that's it. He's done for. And then we just get a shot of an ambulance pulling away as the SWAT team start infiltrating the building. And I was like, when I realized what was going on, I'm like, this is one of the smartest psycho killers I've ever seen because he knew there's no other way for me to get out of here unnoticed than by getting into an ambulance right. and being carted right. off to the place I the need to go hospital. soon. I was like, this guy is next level. Like I, I, I fucking love that. I, I was hooting and hollering when the Canadian SWAT team showed up because it's like these guys that just have like rolled up like like knitted hats you know (laughs) that's like their only definable feature like they're like not militarized at all they're just like canadian guys with little winter caps and like assault rifles yeah hilarious scene oh yeah sure yeah again a, a total indictment of of all the emergency services uh within perhaps montreal because yeah he does just sort of just snake right through their 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 grasp i mean pathetic and of course you know we all knew where it was going and that was of course for uh the knife to eventually be plunged into uh ironside himself yeah. the penetrator becomes the penetrated yeah he sure does how it, how it usually goes i mean honestly like i felt when that happened at the end the inevitable which we all know is coming 
um, was like anticlimactic compared to the antics throughout the film. Like if I'm summing this movie up, like man, the it's got a crazy opening with him, and yes, a lot of kind of leisurely people doddering around hospitals, but his like his just constant. Uh, attempts at like getting in there and creating havoc was for me a lot of fun. And, and again, like Ironside's particular performance, which is throughout the film, nearly silent. Yeah, almost no line. There's this strange moment when he does get his hands on Lee Grant at the ending where he kind of becomes like a motor mouth for a minute, you know, where he's suddenly like, now it's my turn to talk. And he just starts like <laughs> spitting out all this stuff. You talk, talk, talk. Oh. You're gonna listen, you're going to listen to me. You wanted me to make it. Oh. You never listen. Talking, talking all the time. You're going to listen to me. And and kind of fumbling. And it is, again, an interesting moment of being like, all right, you got what you want. You you got your, here's your, here's the editor, you know, <laughs> to say what you want. And it just comes out so, yeah, like, just just bumbling and and nervous and awkward. And then, yeah, he's off. It's just this moment of kind of like all this for that. <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah. it's 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 almost unsatisfying, but you know whether that's by design or not, I think it speaks to again the 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 sort of confusion you've described throughout this film. Yeah, in certain respects, it feels like the movie reaches that crescendo, like you said, at the beginning, and then kind of goes in the opposite direction. Kind of wanders around the corridors a little bit, yeah. you know, just doing making the rounds, <laughs> yeah. making the rounds. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's yeah. kind of how it feels going to a hospital. You know, if you got to go, it's usually because something intense happens and you're freaked out and then you're like, Oh shit, we got to rush to the hospital. But then like when you finally get there, it's take some time. But yeah, Andy, I hope that, um, you know, they were, we had some hospitals of healing and we had, um, some hospitals of pain and agony, but I hope that, you know, getting you checked in, we were able to kind of take care of you and, and help you out. Um, when you visit the hospital in movies, you know, have there been any, particular ones that you enjoyed spending time in that you would recommend if people are kind of shopping around where they want to get taken care at? Oh, sure. Plenty. Um, I mean, I think two that, that kind of have come to my mind this week, particularly, um, and not necessarily because of the movies. Well, one was because of, of the movies, but I guess, you know, the first one for me, and it's, it's an interesting kind of take. It's not the most traditional hospital, but I am a a big fan of of Robert Altman's MASH, Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Hospital. Yeah, I love MASH. I I think it's it's just it's such a great movie and and um, yeah, I mean Altman. What can you say? We've said it already on the podcast. He fucking rocks. You know, MASH is great. I love MASH. Um, and and the other one, you know, I was thinking a lot about it. This one when I was watching um, um, a Pitch Up Pong's film. Uh, was was John Woo's Hard Boiled, you know, because I kept thinking in the stillness, in the beauty of his hospital, in in the, the, the quiet moments, I just kept picturing Chow Yun-Fat like bursting through a window with a tactical vest, a shotgun, <laughs> and a baby tucked under one arm as the maternity ward yeah. is under siege by, by, uh, by various, you know, you know, black market arms dealers, yeah, but Canadian SWAT guys. Yeah. Totally, totally bumbling around. But, but yeah, I mean, hard boiled with Chow Yun fat, 
Tony Lung and and scores and scores of of bad guys. It's it's my favorite setting for his Hong Kong bullet ballets, the the hospital and in, in hard boiled. Just a great movie. Well, I was up this week. Who's up next week? Ryan, I think you're up. Ryan, yes, yes. Yeah. Yet again, here he goes. Well, you know, I think it was smart for us to check into the hospital. I think, you know, been just chatting with the boys. I think we all got our own troubles. I'm feeling better already. I'm feeling better already. And I got to say, you know why I'm feeling better? Uh, one of the reasons was this double feature. I was thinking about, um, as I mentioned, I was pretty relaxed because of uh, I find comfort in, in exploitation films of, of, you know, horror films from the 80s. But I also, you know, there's nothing more peaceful and relaxing than a film like Syndromes in a Century. So I consulted with the doctors at the hospitals we visited. I asked for a prescription, you know, how can I, how can us boys take care of each other? And they really just, you know, they told us to take a chill pill. So I'm thinking next week, why don't we take a chill pill? Why don't we uh, look at just a, a pair of relaxing films? Um, and I'm gonna let you guys kind of determine that however you want. Um, I'll let you define what you consider relaxing, but you know, I'm thinking, I got a busy week ahead. We all got a lot of stuff going on. I'm probably gonna have to watch these movies in the morning. I'm thinking, let's let's relax a little bit. Let's Let's cozy up. Excellent. I can use it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Why didn't you tell me about that woman? What woman? What woman? Oh, boy. They really have gotten to you. Oh. What's this? Please, what is this? Look, I have told you I am checking out of here. Have I made myself clear? What's going on? We have a little problem. Didn't you tell me about that woman? Why didn't you tell me about that woman? That woman in my old room. He killed her. He thought it was me. I know it. Listen, listen. That was not a robber in my house. It is me he's after. I know it. Why didn't you tell me? I thought I could trust you. Deborah, you can trust me, but there are rules. I have to follow them and you're my patient. He thought it was me. It is me he is after. I know that. All they know for sure is that she was very wealthy. She has a a lot of relatives. What are you talking about? Deborah, if you want to do your show on the 20th, you have to have surgery. No! No! God damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Only Deborah will relax you. Just trust me. He's here, I know it. I'll be gone for a few hours, but I'll be back to check on you later. Don't leave me. He's here, I know it.